Welcome back to the Founder-Led Marketing Show. In today's episode, we talk with Philip Strömann, the co-founder and CEO at Comex, which is a sales enablement platform, a SaaS company based in Germany. Um, and we talk about their journey of bootstrapping from zero to 10 million plus in ARR. And uh, I think there are some good nuggets here, you know, how, how they got off the ground, how to get the first customers, how to hire your first sales reps, when to hire your first sales reps, and how Philip thinks about now scaling past the 10, 12 million in ARR and going into the next stage with a private ec equity deal acquiring two companies. And so I hope there's something in there. If you have any feedback or comments for me, let me just know on LinkedIn. And now enjoy the episode with Philip Strömann. So yeah, Philip is the uh, co-founder and CEO at Comex. Comex is a sales enablement platform that uh, helps B2B SMBs kind of solve sales from A to Z, I would say. Um, um, and so I first met Philip in 2020. And I mean, I don't know, on LinkedIn, there's ads on YouTube. And I think you guys are one of the, the success stories in the, you know, German speaking um, in the in the Dach area for for scaling uh, SaaS business, especially bootstrap, which is which is always harder than if you get like 10 million in funding to fuel your growth. And so today uh, we want to unpack that a little bit. So, yeah, Philip. Um, was it a good kind of one sentence, two sentence thing, or did I miss anything on kind of your role and then what, what Comex is? How would you phrase it right now of what you guys do? Right. Uh, I mean, to, first of all, uh, thank you so much for letting me join. I think I have to, I have to say this right now and then I, please, uh, you know, uh, forgive me for that, but like being, being on LinkedIn live was, was such a nerve wrecker over the past 24 hours. So just for the full record, I was, I was actually supposed to come on a podcast now, now we're live. So thanks Finn, for adding a little extra spice in Q4. So let's see, <laughs> let's see how we can get this done, but thanks so much for the intro. I didn't hesitate. Um, once, um, it was super nice also to hear from you. We haven't chatted in a while. So I think it was also a nice, um, opportunity to catch up. Um, yeah, in terms of the intro, um, Philip, around 36 years old, married since last year to my wife, Kira, staying in Kreuzberg, used to stay in Copenhagen and Cape Town, and have been busy building comics with our two co-founders, Christoph and Pete, uh, which was a bootstrap story. Um, we made it our uh, mission to uh, consolidate fragmented B2B sales processes into one seamless data-driven approach because we believe sales is quite important. And we learned early that SaaS and tools and technology is one part of that that obviously has to be dealt with, but that also internal processes and people and hence also service side um, offerings uh, that we did with comics that were also quite relevant. And uh, we're doing this number one through helping companies in the B2B market uh, with very technical products to find their ICP, the idea customer profile, we work a lot with data there. We understand what's the most compelling niche we help with messaging for uh, outbound messaging to landing pages, to anything. And we help with sales consulting. So we look at the funnel, understand if the offer is validated and actually ready to scale. And um, there's many more things to come next year. My role was always sales and marketing as a founder. Uh, today, I'm basically managing director with my uh, co-founder, Chris, and Pete um, does product. And um, I'm mostly involved now actually building the next comics, which is also, of course, offer packaging, but also working with our uh, two new daughter companies, Tendex and GSL. One is a technology company uh, that will help us to go multi-channel across LinkedIn, email, and any channel you can think of. And the other one is a service company that 
will be established as our consulting arm. So kind of busy with that. And when I saw Finn's questions around uh, what wasn't hitting 1 million, what wasn't hitting 5 million, I realized that I, that I, that I sometimes was so busy back then that I don't remember when exactly those points had happened. So I have my little note uh, uh, pad here, uh, my cheat sheet, and see um, if, I, if I can hopefully share some insights, but also very much looking forward into discussion and uh, getting your insights as well, learning more. Cool. By the way, just one note before we jump in, I find it kind of reassuring that the CEO of a, you know, 10 million plus hundred people plus company still says they get nervous about going live on LinkedIn because I always get super nervous. <laughs> and so I don't know, I feel it, it it's quite uh, sympathetic, you know, that, uh, that it still made you nervous. So that's, I think it's a personality of- thing and, and I, I will never get rid of, uh, being quite nervous about being on stage. They will never go away. <laughs> That's awesome. Cool. So let's start with the start, which is the founding story. So on LinkedIn, it says that you guys started Comex in 2018. Um, that was the kind of official <clears throat> launch. Can you take us back to that initial kind of you and your co-founders chatting about problem you saw in the market, gap you saw in the market? What was it that made you guys say, all right, let's, let's start something? Well, yeah, I do think that um, that story uh, might be quite familiar for many founders and also specifically many bootstrapped uh, people who are so fed up with a problem and they couldn't couldn't buy anything solving that problem that they started creating solutions themselves. So um, when I when I basically did my master's, when I ended my you know work at Google, I was very very young. Was in Dublin for a while. And I was very, very young, also leaving Google because I wanted to do my master's and actually um, start a company meanwhile. And as many ex-AdWords consultants do, I started an e-commerce uh, business and uh, selling hats and it grew organically. But I realized, uh, you know, taking care of support tickets um, with angry moms because I forgot a shipment before the 13-year-old kid is definitely something so honorable and so important, I guess, for that person. But I just realized I can't do B2C. I just don't understand it. I'm not good enough. I'm not patient enough. And so B2B was almost my thing. And I had one mandate um, where I was advising uh, B2B companies um, that mostly were um, post-seed uh, uh, up to Series A on how to hire salespeople, how to train them, because I saw a lot of stuff and I had loads of people I could approach for th- those topics uh, through my network. And I was just entering in this learning journey of how to do that. And this was all happening in Copenhagen um, because this was where we studied. And Chris um, and I were actually working for one company, which used to be a mandate, which was a software as a service business, had raised seed and <clears throat> was burning a little bit uh, through um, that, that money too quickly. And we found ourselves actually helping um, that business um, where in the end we became full-time employed um, because we had to find ways how to scale that without actually um, them burning too much. And the issue of just how to build a scalable, repeatable sales process for a very complex product where you barely have product market fit uh, with also a service component because the guys also did consulting um, back then was just our day-to-day bread and butter. And Chris kind of became the BDR champion. I became the uh, account executive back then as first commercial employees. And Chris was mostly focusing on how to build outbound funnel quickly. And I was mostly figuring out, okay, how do, how do you package something that people don't really know that exists? So innovation software, very broad term. How do you package that? How do you make it approachable? And <clears throat> while this business was actually hoovering and, and you know, almost uh, you know, you're no tanking, we found a way how to move them from post-series A sorry, not post-seed, post, post where they burn a little bit too much cash to actually hoovering and becoming profitable. And 
people had heard about that. Um, they asked us what we did, and we kind of started documenting all of those things. So comics, now to your question, was not really something that we envisioned or an idea. It was basically happening because we started documenting our best practices, giving those away uh, to some of our friends. They then asked us, hey, can you do something on a freelance basis? Mm. We said, no, we can't really, but I help you on the weekends. And if you uh, guys want to pay some money for it, that's fine. We create an entity and invoice you guys. And <clears throat> at some point, the bank account became fuller and fuller. And um, we started approaching Pete in South Africa, who was uh, my MBA buddy uh, from the tech component and started actually developing tech around it and used all the funds we had uh, from those couple of test customers to come up with prototypes and MVPs. And um, back then, I think we didn't really know where this was going. We just knew, okay, you know, having having done all of those uh, steps and go to market and building product and helping businesses for other founders um, for the future wouldn't be as much fun as doing it for ourselves. Uh, I, I think entrepreneurship for us was more of a lifestyle choice than um, only about products. It was about doing something for ourselves. And, and we started onboarding more and more customers, trying to help them. Uh, things were messy and we onboarded more and more and more, developed more and more. And um, yeah, five years later now, uh, we're around with our newly acquired daughter companies, around 150 people, um, broke 12, 12 million AR around uh, right before uh, we we got Flex on board. Now I cannot uh, share those revenue numbers <laughs> anymore, but that I can share. Um, and yeah, that, that was kind of off to the races. So yeah, so, so I think to your question, it wasn't really an idea-driven approach. It was just like getting deeply into this problem, getting super obsessed with it and seeing right. if there's any application that would be useful for people. Um, and I feel like, I mean, that that's a very typical story, especially for bootstrap companies, right? Where you basically just start doing something and then the market basically tells you, hey, we find this valuable. Could you do this for us and we'll pay you money for it, right? It's not like you guys sitting in a room brainstorming an idea and then going out and just being like, hey, does anyone want this? It's like people coming to you and saying like, can you do this for us? Yeah, I, I do think, I mean, I do think that also happens. Like if you have, you know, something like where, you know, you rather go the non-bootstrap route and you have a specific concept, right? right. And you, you identify a specific niche or a specific market that's turning around. That, that is also totally a viable solution. For us, this was a world where we wasn't really, weren't really part of, right? Like being, being part of the whole startup ecosystem is actually not a thing for us. We're only learning this right now after we moved <laughs> business to Berlin because the environment here is like that. But we never saw ourselves classically um, like the typical uh, startup founder. It was in the beginning is really a lifestyle decision and wanting to do something useful. Yeah. And then sometimes it, it works out better and sometimes it doesn't. But I think for us, it was more like we were not as product and, you know, process and solution obsessed as we were problem obsessed. I think that actually ties into this question that Dominique Rapaki asked. He asked, what is the SaaS in Comex? And there's actually a lesson for that I learned from you in there, but I'll let you answer that question. So the question was, what is the SaaS in comics? Yeah. The solution. So we have a number one, um, we have a complete go-to-market solution that uh, combines email outbound as well as LinkedIn, as well as other channels such as mailing. So we can by now can do mailing with comics as well. So there's like a complete go-to-market platform in there that BDRs can use, that your teams can use. And um, I think the, the topic that we got quite obsessed of 
um, is that we combine this with um, saving ICPs and information about your market. So instead of just, uh, you know, being thrown into classical, you know, sales loft, for example, or any other email outbound tool, um, we deal with a target group that needs to get the fundamentals mostly uh, straight first, which is uh, why we actually do ICP um, analytics before we do anything else. So the, the SaaS is basically that you go in, we can share like a demo also afterwards, um, if that's interesting. Um, that you go in and actually uh, the tool asks you questions about your target market. We match that um, with, with our database and understand really what is the problem you're trying to solve. Really our philosophy of like really being a problem-focused sales organization always is, is like embedded into the platform. So there's a massive questionnaire. We double-checked it with all of the um, results we have, we have, we've created since 2018 with thousands of case studies. And we understand who's the best, most profitable niche. What is the communication that um, you know normally triggers them? What has changed around the communication? What are the themes out there in the market? And this is really then helping uh, to create templates, uh, but also to create sales scripts, etc. So next to just you know working with outbound and all those um, you know uh, reply experiences in terms of like who do I send to, how do I create my cadence and things like that for LinkedIn and email. Um, we start normally with, okay, before you send out anything, who do you want to speak to? And what is the what is the ICP that you have defined? And what can we show you in terms of lookalike accounts, et cetera? So there's basically this like whole analytics side that guides customers through. And then there's the actual execution side um, with that. And that is basically where we build a, build a SaaS product. And then we have the customer success team working with our customers um, inside of that. And then there's different service levels. So some people need more support and more management and others can, can basically do it pretty much as self-service. Uh, do you guys leverage AI? I feel like that's kind of like, at least in the US market, what I see is like you have to use AI in your software tools. I mean, of course, it's a it's a topic. The biggest topics we have right now is, of course, when we, and this was essentially the first vision we had for comics. Like, and, and I think we still have it sometimes. I think our YouTube channel is still called, called that because we like mm -hmm. did the first MVP. It was like the grand vision though. AI will do all of your sales. I'm actually doing a webinar next week to tell you why AI is not applicable for all of the parts, but you have to know right. where to use it. Um, but yeah, sure. So we do, <clears throat> we do, um, uh, we use it for template generation, but we're doing this since a while. Um, and we, we do it of course for, uh, for, for big data queries and understanding targets markets. Um, and I think there's like many more applications we could think of right now. Um, but this is probably the ones where, um, where it finds the most application. Um, Although I have to say, you know, when in 2017, 18, it was just such a buzzword. Now the applications become a lot, a lot more clear. And um, in the end, my feeling is that, yes, uh, you know, LLMs, for example, can make your work with copy so much faster. But at the same time, it also commoditizes just text. So you have to find your new angles anyways. Um, and therefore, what I'm very excited about is, what do we do with our data set um, on that to understand basically, um, you know, the the sales process, the product pricing, uh, the stakeholders those companies touch, what gets them excited, what offers work at what price levels, in what industries. And this will be very, very exciting because this is something that normal LLMs normally can't do because they don't have that data set. And that's what we're excited about to look into more also next year. What what can we learn Um after seeing and observing so many conversations happening by all right. platform. I feel like I want to, could you speak to one point? This is one of the things that like, <clears throat> I still remember that I learned from you, like, you know, in 2020, which is that, you know, people think about like business model and we're a SaaS business, we're a service business, we're an agency, we're an info product, everything, you know, people categorize themselves by that. 
And I feel like the insight that that you guys had or the philosophy approach that you guys had is that you got to start with the problem first and then you got to figure out, you know, what's the best vehicle to get people to a solution and your customers actually don't care what the vehicle is as long as it is, solves their problem efficiently. So like, I feel like you guys always had like a weird combination of software plus info product plus services. And it was like, what are you guys really? But it, the, the reason was that that was my takeaway is like, it doesn't matter. It's like, what, what package thing can you come up with that actually best serves the needs and problems of your customers? Right. And I think we, we almost went dogmatic about this, right? We kind of made it a fun experiment to see, okay, uh, we do not see in our margins that there's issues with scale. Uh, we do not see it in our operations that there's issues with scale. So why not make it make make service actually part of our core offering? And um, there are elements, I think, where you definitely, you know, going forward, look at certain limitations, but then it also kind of depends on what market you are. I think the sales enablement market, when I see there's like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of service providers, such as agencies, as well as, you know, trainers. Now there's coaches and the information product stuff, and it's all totally fragmented. And there's also this massive, you know, SaaS and small tool scene where you have this like, you know, a flick and tap it is like carpet yep. of like opportunities yep. um, that is like an exciting way for us to combine and bundle those two specifically now and it's like real of course you know a little bit of a different strategy that I, an insight that i didn't have like five years ago especially when you know valuations that we all sometimes also work towards right are not the same for uh, purely SaaS businesses, but EBITDA valuations also become quite interesting. And uh, businesses that write positive EBITDA are rare. And this is just the way um, we approach this. Number one, at first, it started with, you know, we really believe, honestly, for our small group back then of customers, it was the best solution. Try to scale it up. There are challenges sometimes doing that. But now we see even more demand. And now, like from an entrepreneurial and also, of course, equity perspective, we saw that this actually gets rewarded if you do it successfully, right? With the right. And so I think there's there's different ways and it depends also on the market and the environment. Right. Um, for us, it was clearly also because we, because that's all we knew how to do it, actually, right? So we, we were very, very good at like digitizing things that used to be called services and mm -hmm. making like a process out of that or making a tool out of that. And we got very, very fascinated by that. And with AI, I think this will happen even more. So we will see the productization, I think, of specific things that formerly were called services. We saw already, you know, yeah. through information products and the power of video, how yeah. trading got changed, I guess, forever, right? And also moved into this technical scalable realm, right? And at the same time, um, depending on what, who is your customer group and who do you want to be as a company, you will, will not find, in our case, we find a lot, the ask for companies to say like, no, we really actually quite like that, that we have a, a consultant with you guys. And we would have not gone for a pure SaaS product. And yeah, I think it's still early days. Time will tell, um, you know, what, what's the best strategy. But I think for us, this has worked out well so far. And I'm excited just to also explore how far we, can we push things that people wouldn't touch uh, if they only pure, purely do a SaaS, you know? And, oh, although, yeah. and, and within that, you're right, you know? That, that's also a very successful way of doing it. Right. Um, I think it came partly from personal passion and also lack of talent in other areas, for sure, right? And then we'll see. But we we, yeah. we have decided to be an EBITDA business, right? And, um, yeah. and hence, that's, Love that's it. our path. So 
Okay, so started the business in 2017, 2018. You got your first couple of customers kind of organically just by helping companies and then people seeing that and reaching out to you and, and wanting help too and then eventually charging for it. Do you remember when you guys hit the kind of like 1 million recurring roughly? I'm taking a look at my notes here. I think I think the, the two parts here, yes. I, I, I think I remember vividly when we hit a million krona and mrr that's like about 140,000 euros <clears throat> i remember this more vividly because we back then still were thinking krona um and this was actually before um before 2020 what would have been something between um 29 and 20 we had already planned to slowly shut down business in, in denmark and kind of re-establish everything um because back then we basically just had um, basically an, an MVP, there was no real IP. We were, we were <coughs> packaging things together at the same time. We established the German entity and started building the first um, tech model there. Mm -hmm. um, and the reason we wanted to move from Denmark, although we all loved Copenhagen and staying there, was that uh, we saw that we would need at some point a German-speaking sales team and customer support team. Mm -hmm. And we just couldn't get, we didn't feel we could get it done at the same level of effectiveness. Uh, in Denmark. And back then, we, we were actually really believing that this stuff couldn't be done remote. <laughs> Two years later, we learned differently. But uh, back then, this was important to us. And <clears throat> I remember this was still, I think I had, a, had an assistant who helped me with scheduling, right? Um, but but this was still founder-led sales, everything. We did not Up have Up until one million? So, okay. So, founded 2017, yeah. 2018, I think. So, one million, you said 140k MRR and Corona time, so like let's say 2019, maybe around end of 2019, we hit the the one million. Was that just all you just selling? Yeah. Wow. Me and Chris. <laughs> you and Chris. Okay. Chris, don't 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 forget about Chris. He's probably like he's he's the craziest sales guy ever. So like that that, that has to be noticed here. Really? Um, I am incredible. Okay. And so, how did you guys get those meetings? Was it st still personal network? Was it cold email? Was it LinkedIn? Like, how? What? What? What were the channels to get to a million? Let's say this was the next thing, really, where we didn't have any content. We had, I think, we had a well-written um, landing page that looked nice in a way, right? And we did this purely via outbound email, actually, um, actually just to make a point, <laughs> because I felt like, hey, I know how to set up an ad account. You know, um, I've learned this at some point. I can still do this later, but what if we get to this level by just doing, you know, actually this kind of envision of like the machine doing everything for you with a couple of nice processes and you could do it just, uh, you know, a million or two with one, with, with the co-founders in sales, basically, without them going crazy. Um, mm. We kind of like, you know, wanted to make a point around that. I think now we don't talk about it that much, but back then for us, this was like kind of important. It's just, you know. I mean, it was also about eating your own dog food, right? Because you guys were... Oh, no. I mean, I mean, totally, totally. I think, and and I would always, you know, uh, say, I, I think it's good that we did this. And there was, a, like, the whole story of, like, okay, what have we learned from that? Um, retrospectively, I think I could have totally hired earlier and I wouldn't have mm. had to be, you know, so uh, cringy with, like, no, let's just do this ourselves. You really think it would have been better to hire earlier? You never know. You're never going to find out. I'm just saying, I think, you know, if it would have been just about scaling, you could have made the argument that we actually went a little slow. Mm. Right. Um, a little slow. <laughs> no, in terms of, in terms of, in terms of building the organization, right. There's one thing of just revenue scaling and the other part is people scaling. And mm -hmm. I think if you, if you know, you get to that point where you also want to want to get people into place, um, scaling that organization early and, you know, learning that, um, I, I think you cannot 
almost cannot start early enough if you can afford it, if that makes sense, right? Yeah. Um, okay, so yeah. so you went to roughly a million just purely cold email and founder-led sales. Was the one million roughly when you guys started hiring your first uh, salespeople, or when? when I think that we. Kind of I mean, you have to you have to mention for that that of course one million is very very different um, to one company to another. We are a fairly high ticket product, right? From like you know forty to eighty k even in, in value. So yeah. in the end, like you know one million one million AR um, by 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 that standard uh, is actually not as many customers as if you would have a lower ticket product, right? So you totally. have to, of course, um, mention that. Um, so, so in terms of units sold, um, I think we, we've been, let me just look at my notes here. I think around 2020, we were already past the 2 million, but it was also that I think it was, because our ticket was a little bit higher, those phases that people speak to, I think, you know, going to one uh, was, was a biggie because that was the first indication of product market fit, I guess. But then going from one to two, even though that's doubling, you know, it probably just went by like this, you know, the same from like, I would say the big jump. You mean because you, you raised your prices a lot, and so it was just not a lot of additional customers, or because you just feel like, so you know, two million in revenue—that's one hundred and sixty k MRR. Right. I think your monthly was like around five k at that point, something like that. I think we were a little bit. I think we probably had a had a bunch of customers in lower tier engagements. I think we added higher tiers in that time that then, of course, bumped us up as well. You know. Right. So yeah, pricing was one 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 key driver. But also, I mean, once you get the hang of it and things are working, I mean, um, you've been in that position as well. Once you feel the packaging is great and you get mm. it to flow, um, I think it, it goes quite quick that you get those closing rates up, you know, and then you improve your material. And I think that then is just, how do you call it? Uh, yeah, that's like uh, sweat work, you know? Um, <laughs> okay, I feel like, okay, let's, let's focus on this because I feel like, you know, obviously... This early stage, you know, getting off the ground, getting to the first million, getting to two million, that's where most companies die, right? Mm. Most companies never hit that point. <clears throat> and so you kind of said it's kind of easy once you feel like it's working, but I think it's not for most companies. So, like, what do you think? Did you guys just get lucky? What did you guys focus on? What did you guys see that made you be able to, you know, pounce on this opportunity in the way that, you know, you say it's relatively easy. Once you have a million, you get to 2 million. It's 2022. That's only two or three years in. Most companies would dream about hitting those numbers two or three years in without any outside funding being completely bootstrapped. So like, let, let's break it down a little bit more, maybe like what, what were you looking for? Let's say in those first additional customers to define okay, we need to iterate on the product. Okay, we need to change pricing until you said, okay, we're locked in. We know who we're selling to. We know the pricing point. Now it's just me, you know, like just right. going after it. Right. I think, I mean, one big part was that, you know, I think the beachhead we originally started with, which was um, Copenhagen-based or Scandinavian-based companies wanted to move into Germany. That's normally the target group that approached me and asked like, hey, we don't have any German speaker. Can you figure out how we get into Germany? Can you spin up the ad boards? Can you you know, get us lists. Can you help us hire people in Hamburg? You know, <clears throat> so this was the world I knew. And, um, you know, in the Nordics, you do have a, like actually in all small domestic markets, you do have a, it's not really a phenomenon, but it's quite straightforward that 
Nordic uh, SaaS companies just normally have to internalize way, way earlier than like larger domestic markets right. because you cannot get to your funding stages by just staying in Denmark in specific niches. Specific niches can't even, you know, finish their MVP in only one country because there's so little amounts of companies um, that they can target. In the enterprise segment, for example, there's not that many enterprise businesses in Denmark, for example. So they have to look outside early, right? And that's just, that was just a thing. And this was our beachhead. And we did this a lot. And I think we got us somewhere, but of course, uh, startups are also volatile, not only from the product. So you, so you actually sell into a group where you share the risk a little bit of the, if the product works, then you share the risk if the company is operating well enough and you share the risk if they get the next funding. So it's like a very fragile, um, fragile space to be in sometimes. Um, and we realized that the problems, however, um, that those companies were facing were kind of completely in sync with, you know, B2B tech companies that are not in the startup sphere, do not depend on funding, are owner-led, maybe they're 50 people, maybe they're 10 years, 20 years old, and they just haven't really gotten around to establish a proper sales process. And I think that ICP shift from Beachhead, where we had to learn a lot, into a direction where there was just no better payment morale, actually more perceived value as well, you know, because they normally, like, so for if you have SMBs in Europe, they they were willing to pay a little bit more for our advice, for example, because they were less digitized. Um, I think this was one big step, I think, to the first one or two million that, that helped there. But to your question... Um, of course, it isn't easy, but if you have a little bit higher tickets and like, you know, go into a little bit bigger accounts so you can move from 10, 10K a year, maybe to 20, 30K a year, that makes a big difference, right? And then, of course, um, I'm just looking here. I think it was something between 25 and 50 customers. And all I'm saying is that the first 25 are customers and getting them in, onboarding them and having them, you know, the next 25 felt quicker, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, and a little bit more easy once you have mm -hmm. a little bit of a flywheel going. So... What what would you tell someone? I want to just, I know we have the later stages, but I feel like I just want to focus on this stage. What would you tell someone? I mean, look, like I started what became Project 33 around 2018. Now I didn't have co-founders. I was just a freelancer. I, you know, was like 21. I was like doing some personal branding on Instagram. But now it's 2023. We still haven't hit a million, right? You're past 10 million. Right. So I'm sitting here, I'm like, shit. And so like one of <laughs> the problems, one of the problems that, that I deal with is that I'm, I'm, I'm the only person selling our solution, right? So I'm on the sales calls, I'm selling it. I'm also right. really the only person building the solution. And I always know, you always know how it could be better. You always have ideas. You're always a little bit like, shit, are we focused on the right market? Are we focused on the right customers? Should we maybe do something different? I have all these ideas how I could potentially make the product, the offer even better. So like, how do you make the decision between saying, all right, let's stay small and iterate on our offer and try to just make it better and, and experiment and try to find, you know, who we can best sell to and get the highest ACV versus at some point saying, look, this is good enough. It's not perfect, but it's good enough. We're not going to make major changes to the product, to the positioning, and we're just going to hardcore sell it. We're just going to, you know, like, how do you make that decision? Because it seems like you guys made that decision relatively early and you found something and you just went hardcore focus mode. Let's just sell this. So, like, what would you tell someone like me, you know, when to focus and, and when to still build, you know? 
Hmm. I, I'm not sure if I should give advice because unique situations require, you know, a, a unique approach to it, right? But what I can tell you what happened for us and what worked for us. And I think one important thing I think that I that, that, that you must mention is, of course, that I was not alone, right? I had Chris building customer success processes and I had Pete building tech and infrastructure. And <clears throat> then it was really about, so I can tell you how, how the three of us did it. We, we said together once a year and during COVID, we had to visit all sorts of African uh, countries for our founders, uh, you know, meetings because Pete wasn't allowed as a South African party to travel into Europe uh, because of, uh, you know, the xenophobe allegations that all Corona variants come from South Africa, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. which they don't. So they were pretty picky on South Africans enter um, enter Europe. And so um, every time we met during COVID, but even beforehand, it was just a question, okay, what, what do we want to do with our lives even? And what is, what, is our, what is our preferred way of working and how, how is this going? So I think it's a very personal question right. on how much pressure you want to endure, how much risk appetite you have, how okay are you with, we always had a mantra of like, hey, sell before build, because we wanted to see if it really was commercializable and we mm. would accept the heat and reimburse customers if they were not happy and would go mm. into, hey, we're selling a high price product. They're definitely going to complain if something's not right. So therefore, we have to hustle hard and invest everything we can into the product to make it awesome. This is, of course, something that also has to be agreed um, with, with personal taste. And I know, for example... That Chris was a key driver of this um, because he's a lot calmer than I am, right? I'm more the anxious of, of us two, to be honest, right? And um, this is something which is a, a lot around also your philosophy. And did we know this was the right way back then? No. And, and so often did I, I should totally build this and then only go out. But then in the end, we also said like, <clears throat> let's, just, let's just move on anyways, right? Let's see where we can, where we can drive this. And, uh, you know, once customer reviews became more positive and positive, then you feel like, hey, okay, we're definitely onto something here. Let's just explore this kind of method further. So I think if I have to break it down, as of course, for you as a solo founder, I understand that's very, very tough. Um, if I could do it again, I would always, uh, you know, try to have like, you know, people with me in a way. Um, I have a lot of like solo founder friends. And I think it's not only the growth part, some of them managed also as well. But the point is really that I think you cannot do it all by yourself. Um, to some extent, um, and that's I guess where we got lucky. It's a very three very different guys, um, very complementary in skill set, and very much very much aligned. However, to say, hey, what 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 would happen if we put the pedal to the metal? What's the worst that can happen? You know. So it sounds a little bit almost like this. Uh, what is it? Facebook, uh, move fast and break things. When you when you talk I mean, I, about- yeah, I mean, I think. <laughs> because <laughs> I think a little bit more hardcore a little bit more impactful um but but of course I think the I think the, we never had this in our mantra but I think <clears throat> what what we what we said was that um that I think this is one thing which is also in our manifesto that growth is inevitable and it does mean you have to grow at all times in your business but like that we do not get attached to past states <laughs> never you know, because growth and change is absolutely inevitable. And, you know, the gods or you, whatever, will decide after 50 years what was a good and bad decision. But it's very likely that they don't even remember, right? Like when you approach me and say, like, I feel I have all those questions, all those marks. Like, I would have to take a look exactly. I really have to think about what did we, because in the end, it just doesn't doesn't matter all that much as long as you're strong, strict to your values and, and look, you know, that you ideally <laughs> do not do any harm, right? So yeah. who cares if like a product breaks in between? Right. Um, 
of course, to an extent where it shouldn't harm your brand, but I mean, yeah. otherwise you may never find out. So like, it's a little bit like not asking out that, 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 that flirt of yours ever, you know, just because right. the rejection might be painful. Like, yeah, but is it painful forever? No, we want to so, know. So I right. want to, I want to, yeah, I want to double click on the reimbursement part because, you know, the business owner me, one super respects it saying like, look, we're, we're probably going to fuck up sometimes. We're probably not able to deliver, but that's fine. We'll, we're, we'll able to reimburse people and kind of refund people. And it's worth it because that allows us to go fast. But so I respect that, but also the business owner me is like, I run a service business. So at least 50% is like cocks for me. Right. So like if I invoice, you know, whatever, three months and then it doesn't work out, like at least 50% of that is just like that money is already money that I spend. So like, do you refund 50% of that? Do you refund 100% and then you just eat the 50% of costs that you kind of, you know, threw down the drain? Like, how do you approach that? Like, that sounds great, but it also sounds so risky and scary. You I know? mean, I mean, uh, totally. I think the point is really that, you know, I think commercially, you should not give yourself the options mentally. Hey, if it doesn't go well, we just refund. I'm, I'm saying this is what you can do if things really fall apart. And eventually, you know, you just have to uh, you know, say, okay, in that MVP phase, hey, I understand that, especially when you're high ticket. That, that you that you just want to eventually do the right thing for future yeah. <laughs> don't burn the bridge right? right but the point is really that you get into a mindset where you say no we're not going to refund this we just fucking stole this <laughs> like whatever it takes let's just imagine we're not allowed to refund this person what do we have to do to still make the person happy and i think yes of course i think it's not this is just not a business model or pricing question I'm, I'm, I'm in the mvp stage where you asked me around hey should I should I keep on selling or rather building? And I'm like, in the end, just do both and see where it breaks, right. you know? Because you can right. still apologize, make it better, right? And if shit hits the fan and the customer is really, really upset, then uh, you can still have the option to to find a, a way how to act face-saving for both parties. <laughs> do you have any advice for, I think all of that makes a lot of sense, I think it's still super hard when you're as the founder on that sales call and you are aware that there's still so many things you could be improving and additional features you already have in mind and all these things you could be doing to still be able to pursue the sale and, you know, be hardcore and not, you know, send one follow up and then being like, oh man, I guess they don't want to become a customer. And then you kind of drop, because that's what I struggle with. Is it just like, I don't know, just, I don't know, just do it, you know, the, but is there anything mindset wise that you can say to me to, you know, walk that line of still being ethical, but also being able to say, look, we're running a business here and yes, no product is ever perfect, but, um, you know, you need to pursue the sale with persistence to be able to actually, you know, close stuff. So I don't know. Any thoughts on that? Um, I think one, one thing is like customer happiness and you should always focus on that. And you should really listen carefully if a customer is not happy. Yeah. No question about it. And I think you shouldn't deflect. You should totally listen. And maybe the tone isn't right. But I think that's just what I, I would feel us being people putting products into the world, we just have to listen to that stuff, right? And yeah. after a while, you will see which one is more valuable, less valuable, which is one is maybe out of the park, but which one is just pure gold, right? So that's the customer happiness part of it. When it comes to sales, however, right? And there, I think for customer happiness part, I think you should 
you know, figure out what you want, what you, what, what change you want to imply, and also where the fine line is of, hey, I'm also an innovator. I try things out, I fuck up, and I can totally live with that, right? When it comes to sales, however, I, I, and I, I had the same feeling, and many of our young sales reps have that. And I mean, strong follow-up and persistent follow-up is nothing that does any harm that's like really of course within means when it comes become when it becomes unproductive that's just silly but if somebody gets upset or triggered for you following up one more time as an honest entrepreneur wanting to sell your solution i would say that's entirely their problem and you just have to accept the consequences mm. and i think what 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 helps there is just to say like look there's so many transactions done life is complicated people get upset for very good reasons everybody's in their own journey Everybody has a bad day sometimes. And I think I wouldn't start making this so much my problem if I have a clear goal and I want to go for it. Right. Okay. So just get over yourself. Um, yeah. Sure. And think about like, what's important in five years time, man. Like we're on a, we're on a big, like ball of dirt flying right. through the galaxy, right? right. In a hundred years, and I mean, you and I are not here. What does and it I mean, matter? We're selling to adults, right? And so... <laughs> If, if they don't want to hear from you anymore, they can tell you, right? And then <clears throat> then you shouldn't follow up, I guess. But, you know, if they just ghost you, you know, you can tell yourself all kinds of stories. But maybe it was just that they had a busy week or they're on vacation and that's why they didn't reply. Yeah, I mean, and eventually you're never going to find out. So, like, in yeah. no instance whatsoever, it makes so much time to think about why did that person not come back? I would, I would go as far as, as long as I have not heard a no from the person, it's completely legitimate to follow up if it's still worth my time, right? Like if you feel like, hey, yeah. I've now followed up to the bad end over three to six months just to find somebody shouting, I haven't closed one single deal, then you can think about rather um, from that perspective, is it really worth my time? You know, should I not invest my time into smarter tactics of getting yeah. deals in? But in terms of, I would say, ethics from founder, honest intent, honest commercial intent, I mean... I, I wouldn't worry about that uh, too much because as you say, it's, we're adults, we can tell each other, no, right? like, it's fine. For, for that part now, you know, getting it off the ground, getting to one to 2 million, doing cold outbound, doing founder-led sales, were there any things you remember back then, like books, resources, frameworks that helped you the most? Or was it just like learning on the job and... No, I mean, back then I was in a phase where I was an absolute workaholic, which also wasn't sustainable, but I did, um, I did spend every single um, minute on, on Audible, to be honest. Uh, it's very mm -hmm. funny how I wasn't a podcast person at all <clears throat> until about two years or so. I think the all import converted me altogether. Like this was just like <laughs> the, 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 my part of my like podcast stars. It wasn't really my medium beforehand. Um, and yeah, I mean, I do think there is like, of course, um, you know, zero to one from Pinati, like all the goodies, um, the innovators dilemma, um, what you do is who you are um, from Andreessen. Of course, you know, um, based on our first MVP, uh, predictable revenue from Aaron Ross, all, all of those things. Um, I mean, I'm happy I can share my book list later. Um, I don't think there's like anything like super particular in there. If people follow podcast series, I think our book list become boringly the same across the board right, right. but that also means that there's very effective <clears throat> books being written that are that are guidance for a lot of people but to your question yes a lot of stuff i got from books a lot of stuff chris and i got from advisors 
early help. We were very much on the bandwagon of when in doubt, go out. It's like, it's also a comics principle. Like it's not a, not an issue in not knowing. It's, I think it's just an issue not recognizing that you don't know and then start making hypotheses mm -hmm. and wanting to be mm -hmm. right. So in the end, we had this rule in Founders where we were not knowing what we were talking about. We would not discuss it. And somebody would take ownership of the problem and then find out. And then another person could research and challenge that what was found out with a different piece of research. But we would stop debating stuff. We just had no data on altogether. Oh, I love that. All right. So let's focus on the next stage. Uh, when did you hire your first salespeople? So we, 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 we landed in January 2020 in Berlin. Chris and I moved into an Airbnb apartment. He convinced me to move in together. I was like, dude, we've been traveling so much right now. I'm not sure if I want to do this moving thing. And he was like, no, no, it's going to be good. Trust me. We moved into this Airbnb in, in Mitte. I think close also. I think where, where you've, you've moved close to the English class. And um, it was, we, we, we didn't like to leave Copenhagen. I am heavily winter depressed and overworked like crazy. I'm like, yeah, totally, totally keen to go to Berlin in January. What a, what a fucking nice idea. Beautiful month. <laughs> Beautiful. And, and, um, then, then we kicked it off there, um, set up shop, uh, rented a co-working space, um, uh, and started, started basically hiring, uh, did this also funnily enough, uh, by LinkedIn outreach and hired mm -hmm. those uh, first, first three amazing guys. Um, Dennis still with us today, a sales manager leaving actually now went on his own entrepreneurial journey, but he was mm -hmm. with us uh, for more than three years, um, until last month and Nicholas was customer success and great guy, but actually not, not, the, not the right fit. Um, we found out that year and then we kicked it off because this was the kind of the main idea. Okay. What, what we have to do next, we needed to get Chris out of customer success and, um, fill out of sales basically. Right. Mm -hmm. So the whole principle was, okay, how, how can we find out if that redundancy piece happens? And, and mind you, this was still bootstrap. We didn't have those classical growth paths of like, yeah, then we do series A and stuff. It was always for us. Okay. If we can do this only, then we go to the next phase. If we can do this then we go to the next phase. Um, and this was in the beginning of 2020. And if I look at my notes, there was this big dip in revenue because I got distracted, right? Um, and I was setting up shop, looking at offices, yada, yada. So in the end, I just did less demos and I was distracted. Yeah. So not my, not, and Chris and I were both, uh, so some customers lost, et cetera. And then we found this huge heap once we started handing over. I think they started in April. The first deal of them took, I think, until... With my support, end of May, middle of June, so a good two months of training, which right now is crazy. Right now we have like people closing over the first month, really, when they <laughs> join us. Um, but yeah, this was like kind of like the first time we felt like okay, now we have to like it, it, in South Africa it was different, but in, but from the commercial unit we did have no employees, right? So um, right. this was the first time where we where we started that, and the, the goal was basically yeah, just getting. Phil and Chris redundant. We always call it redundant. So do you feel like that was the right timing to bring, uh, you know, those three people on? Should you have done it? Well, you mentioned earlier, maybe you should have done it earlier, but looking back, would you do it differently now? I mean, I, I, I think if I would have done it again before, like, so if I would do it again, I would, would have done the whole people placement thing a little bit earlier, just, just to learn how to do it. Um, cause we pushed ourselves to that effect that we wanted to grow at the same pace and just double, triple, uh, while learning, I think the whole <clears throat> people place in terms of sales, customer success, training, and we did not hire a senior managers for that at the beginning, right? So I think 
yeah, I think I could have done earlier. I think I could have had a couple of more seniors directly on the team if you can afford it. Um, right. But I think it's also the bootstrapping journey to go step by step. So I don't regret it. And we will never find out if that would have been better. But um, retrospectively, I felt that we we could have been a little bit more bold at adding a little bit more people and sometimes more senior people to their team to also have more and more choice and see how people perform against each other in terms of creating healthy competition and really building a culture and like... Um, th th which is which is stuff we've been busy with over the last two years and doing that over an organization that already has grown is just more exhausting than letting it grow with you from early on. I think it's Jason Lemkin who says always hire two salespeople at the same time so that 100%. one you can kind of compare and they have some competition going on. You agree with that? 100%. And it's also more fun. It's also like, it's, it's not, there's a competition, like from an entrepreneurial perspective, there's a competition piece. You do not know. It's like an AB test, right? You do not know if, if, if the process is wrong, if one person is not performing, mm -hmm. you do not know mm -hmm. if the process is, process is great. If one person is super performing, you want to see mm -hmm. how um, they compare and contrast to each other. And then there's also the employee piece is also just nicer, right? right? It's nicer for personal growth to have colleagues. It's nicer to have like some, some nice competition and bouncing off ideas of each other. So um yeah, so so we knew that. Um, that's why we also got two straight away. Um, and yeah, and what we should have done this for customer success as well, just more people quicker. What would you say, what should be the trigger to start transitioning from founder-led sales to hiring those two first reps? Is it like a revenue number? Is it just like purely there's too many demos on your calendar to handle? Is it like, a, you know, like what's the trigger to say, okay, let's move out of this and transition? Right. Um, I think so. My, and this is what I talk to customers about a lot. I think it's actually number of units sold back to back that are comparable to each other. So you can actually processize the, 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 the moment when you realize, hey, I'm doing this now. My documentation is on point. My scripts are on point. I know exactly how to onboard a person. I think this is the point where that really makes sense. It's different for, you know, Venture-backed uh, companies, when you say, hey, I'm getting an experience, go to market guy and he hires to see, he or she hires a mm -hmm. salesperson and he has mm -hmm. his playbook, right? There's people like that out there. I used to do this, right? So there's people like that out there, they're pricey, but you can totally do that. Um, from a bootstrap perspective, you can also do that if you have the cash. If you don't have the cash, I would look at the number is not only revenue. It's like if my, if my revenue of 2 million came from three customers and one is 10K, the other one is 750K, the other one is 1.25, right? Right. Um, then like maybe, but I mean, maybe we have a topic here where, um, yeah, this is quite heterogeneous. Right? Right. So, um, so what, what you want to have, I think is like some sort of element of predictability in how the sales process and the purchasing process is going. And you, I think you want to have seen this for at least 50 times, the good and the bad as a founder back to back, because the, that's one thing I, you know, which, which might be an unpopular opinion because your buying center <laughs> in b2b is where you're going to spend a lot of time it almost mm -hmm. defines the possibilities of your business right if you are unless you're in a mega trend right and you know the demand is just growing like crazy um endlessly if you choose to write by if you choose the wrong buying center in the beginning right there's like three steps back now but this defines a lot of how commercially successful you're going to be if i compare this like to the innovation management business, there's a reason why you do not have any innovation management SaaS companies which go beyond 50 to 80 people globally, because it's just it's just not a thing. The buying center does not have enough money. It doesn't scale enough. You know, there's there's a topic with sales cycles inside of specific parts of organizations, which are harder to sell to. 
And the choice and the understanding of a buying center is absolutely everything because that's what you craft your offers to. It's the stakeholders you need to convince. It's not always the users of your product. I get it. But commercially, you will have to understand that buying center absolutely inside out. And you have to understand why they go for your solution, why they don't go for your solution, why things take longer, what is hard for them, what is annoying for them. Hey, Phil, why do you send me all this nonsense? I cannot read it. I don't understand your offer. I don't understand your contracts. What the fuck is this? Right? You want to you wanna have heard this, right? And you want to take it seriously. And if you haven't done this, I would say at least, no matter if you close this or not, 50, 100 times back to back, I probably did it more than 1,000 times, that process. Right? Like... Um, then, then what are you going to train your your people? Right. So it's selling the same type of offer at roughly the same type of price point to the same buying center many <clears> times. <throat> you said you kind of had the number of 50, 200. So this is not 50 closed deals, but 50 no, times no, no. going no, through that no. process with a prospect or with a company. And then, right, and I think it's not even. I would, I would go as far as you want to. You want to just find some number where you can draw conclusions and get comparative insights. So it's somewhat comparable, mm-hmm. right? You don't want to say like, "Look, um, I'm a design agency, for example, and I've you know sold this sold this website project, and that was totally cool." But then I also went in there and sold to the CTO as a head of product, and we're doing a little bit of a rebrush of their platform. Right. And I do this twenty more times at different units. Hey, then right. we do the employee branding side of things. Then we sell to HR. Hey. Then we do um, a little bit of landing page stuff, uh, you know, or brochures for the sales team because they go to a fair, nice design work. And then I have maybe 10 customers and like, do you really want to compare that? Unless you like, you see real, even there, there could be comparative measures and maybe you see patterns, fair enough, right? But um, I would I would see that I understand really that buying center. And and this normally goes over exposure therapy and spending time there. So it's 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 about repeatability, but it almost sounds like I mean that almost sounds like product market fit. It almost sounds like you have a product and you know who to sell it to and you know you can sell it kind of repeatably. So that that's I mean, different people define it differently, but but you could see say that that's basically product market fit. No, it's, it's certainly, it's 100%. It's certainly, I think product market fit is even more because then you have the tech component, the service design, user interviews and things like that, right? But but this is certainly part of the commercial part of product market fit, 100%. So it, am I right that if I compare your advice to kind of the more, to most people, what I hear is I would say you would wait longer. You would wait like really until you nailed it as the founder, like, 10 customers, if they're coming out of your network, that doesn't count, you know? Like, you need to have sold this to the same persona, a cold prospect, uh, repeatably, and then you can think about, like, bringing on a sales team. Yeah, I mean, commercially, and then goes into message market fit, your your network customers, they got introduced to you by your best buddy or who you've studied with. They do not tell you anything about how you come across to an ice-cold person that doesn't know you, doesn't know why you're talking to them. So that's something I would always be careful with. Not that people shouldn't go about it. We've also sold in our network. Of course, we draw conclusions from it. Of course, we looked at patterns. But to arrive at conclusions and feeling great about that part and applying this to a complete shark tank, like right. the cold world where nobody wants to speak to you and people have spoken already to 20 competitors, you're just not going to be successful in moving those conclusions you have found in Candyland yeah. to the shark <laughs> tank. Right? I mean, and, 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 and you know, you can see it. In the same way from, okay, here's one process, nice, I got a nice intro, I sold directly to C-level, easy, right? Here's an intro where I do not have direct intro, so I have to go through different stakeholders. So how do those different buying processes differ, right? Right. 
Um, and all I'm all I'm saying is like I probably I mean uh, I, I'm I'm like agnostic, like I'm, I'm like pedantic about it, right? So I think you can always do it earlier. But I've also seen many times where right. um, where where it just didn't help you all that much, right? Yeah. All right. We, we there was just so many things I wanted to talk to. So I guess we we only managed to finish half the agenda. Maybe that's for some future <laughs> episode. But I feel like I feel like I'm fine with it because I think these early stages is really where most people get stuck. You know, and so um, I'm happy that we spend a lot of time there. But maybe just the last couple of minutes, we'll see if some questions come in. You know, what's next for you guys? Like, how do you think about like, you know, you're now at whatever 10 million plus, 12 million plus in, in ARR. You, you, uh, you know, had that private equity um, deal last year. You're now bringing in GSL and 10x. Um, you know, partners. Like, what's what's next for you guys? Like, how do you think about the next stage of growth? I guess. Uh, on the journey to, I don't know, 20 million, 50 million ARR for COMEX? So, uh, I mean, one thing we've learned is that, and this is the whole part that growth is inevitable, that uh, we looked at ourselves and said, like, look, this is becoming a very big company. We've passed 100 people now. We know this is really becoming sometimes a make or break scenario. We never considered any investment. Um, and we felt that it could be a good idea and a good point to say, like, what if we find people like we've always done in the past now it's just different kind of people who have done this journey who went from the 10 to 30 million who created like real category leaders and also get the support to do that because it's potentially a different skill set than what we have in the company right now and where chris pete and i also need feedback and guidance so this is how the, the deal with flex capital came about flex capital is a mid-cap private equity firm that focuses on bootstrap companies only they call it the mid-tech stunt they look into I think DACH only, mm -hmm. and they specifically support founder-led bootstrap companies to go to the next level. It's a super, super nice team. If people like an intro, just ping me. Very insightful, very interesting portfolio. Just a great, great bunch of people of essentially uh, former entrepreneurs and not bankers. Mm. And this was super important to us um, that people had walked the talk beforehand. And when we did this, we basically um, set out and did observations with them together on what, you know, the market is holding. And what we've been seeing is that, you know, the sales enablement market, just getting sales right, will be more important than ever. We're looking into a, a world specifically over the next five years, potentially, where funding is not flowing that easily and mm -hmm. where EBITDA and just creating basically sustainable commercial operations are super important. We're also going into a world where AI might move you know many of the technology tools into vast consolidation so the question is what do businesses do when there's a ton of players out there and um you actually have to create margin you will have to look at the digitization and the you know top-notch effectiveness of your commercial um units and the third thing that we looked at as a macro trend is like why is it that there are so many tools and this is still our old claim why is there a crm system in all those SaaS tools then there's a sponge of like service providers, as well as agencies, infomercials info and stuff. Why is there not one trusted brand that does this for the SMB, which is an end-to-end -end solution? It understands CRM and can also implement CRM, but also has clear guidance on like outbound prospecting and the business development process, as well as um, the consulting side of it. And this is what we set out to do. We, we formed the group uh, last year in August. And the whole idea is, um, and the vision is to um, basically make every sale predictable. And we do this by consolidating fragmented B2B sales processes into one seamless data-driven approach. While we do not care if services have to happen, because that's what we see in the market, there is tools, they're implemented, and people still ask us to do more services yeah. than we already do. There are um, this is 
very, very big need of uh, getting engaged with tools which are specifically crafted for Europe, where Salesforce and HubSpot just cannot cut it um, for specific uh, parts of uh, parts of the market. Um, and this is why we had two great founders join us, um, Robert from uh, Global mm -hmm. Sales Leaders with an SDR as a service product and uh, Otto Lang from 10x, which is a multi-channel uh, tool. And we're working currently uh, diligently since the beginning of the year to integrate that into the comics group. Um, and we're looking forward to basically extend that reach and form a group, which is just incredibly, incredibly helpful. Um, and where you do not have to pick and choose out of five providers, but ideally get everything end to end out of, out of one hand. And I, I'm really looking forward. We see great traction with it. And we see the market is starving for just clarity in that space because there's just too much noise. Two last questions. One is, how do you think about the growth levers going forward? You know, is it doing more of what worked and, you know, having the, the, the sales team go outbound? Is it kind of M&A, acquiring custom, uh, other companies, partner network? Like what, what will be the growth levers going, getting you guys to the next stage? So once you hit a certain size, this is very common, right? So you look at, of course, professionalizing the sales team, which we're going to do next year, and also making making modular offerings better because we see that, for example, of 10 customers we speak to, we have a pretty high closing rate for being a high-velocity team. It's like 15 to 20%, but there's still 80% that we sometimes just cannot serve. Like we, right. we just simply do not have the right uh, product landscape yet in place, which will come in, uh, come in January, actually of being able to serve more of people because we're very good at getting in touch with them. And we have a, have a good track record of you know, providing value in our calls. And we sometimes just cannot sell to this vast market because uh, we have not made the products and services available for them. So one thing is even like modularization, if you will. So getting mm -hmm. increasing basket size, if you will, as a value driver. The other part is, of course, inorganic uh, growth, which is M&A, which, we, which we've done in the beginning of the year. And now it's about like moving the pieces together. And then the next part will, um, you know, <clears throat> naturally be either uh, going more upmarket, right, and understanding what we can do for bigger accounts because there's just massive mm -hmm. opportunities there. So basically, increasing our target market to higher value accounts, increasing ACV yeah. uh, annual contract value in those higher accounts, and then next step would be internationalization. Mm -hmm. So there is, like, it's not, it's nothing like you know, you still have to do it. The doing is the fancy stuff, like like naming naming certain growth <laughs> opportunities. I think. Yeah. Some some MBA student can do this way better than than, than me, right? I think it's in the doing uh, that is tough. <laughs> Who who's like the closest competitor in the US market for you guys? Is it like Apollo or like a sales loft outreach? Like what's the closest you would say? I I'm actually I, I you know I do not follow the US market as much. I'm so yeah. focused on Dach in Europe because there's so Love much it. work to do here. You would, of course, have, you know, companies like Apollo, which just did great advancements in terms of like, you know, prospecting. Um, and and we, we observed them very, very closely. The sales loft is, of course, more in the enterprise space, a very mm -hmm. sales force driven company, right? Integrating very well. So we're going to meet them, I guess, once we go more upmarket. Um, yeah. So so those those guys are around. We do not meet them that much in the <clears throat> SMB segments where we are mm -hmm. right now, but we we certainly will meet them to some extent once we go upmarket. Um yeah, but for now, it's like purely focus on Europe uh, because that's, that had made us successful not to get super distracted of what's happening in the US. We observe it, we learn from it, that's great. But there's very specific, unique dynamics here. And that's why I think people choose us over those tools party as well. Yeah. All right, last question. I'm curious, how did you have to change as the CEO your role, I guess, both professionally and personally? Like how had, did you have to change to, you know, fit the the new requirements of, of running a bigger organization um i think the one thing which i'm learning over the last one and a half years is that 
and I always felt it was like, you know, a little bit of a Foguzi uh, romanticized, you know, heroic image of a CEO where you set the vision and your main responsibility is actually that, of course, things get done, but you have the right people around you to get things done. I always felt like, yeah, yeah, you know, but <clears throat> having that in place and focusing more on team instead of doing things myself and actually letting go of, uh, you know, needing to understand everything like nitty gritty in detail because you're not going to be able to support it all the way through is very, very hard for me. I prefer actually to rather have an area of autonomy that I can really get into, right? Yep. Um, and this area of autonomy is now like not there anymore. It's rather rather widely spread. And this is something we, I think Chris and I constantly are learning and adjusting to. So what, what can we do where our real skill set lies? How can we get the people on board and how to provide the ultimate value for um, the organization, right? And that is changing quite a bit. Love it. So vision, hiring, team. Well, Philip, uh, I really appreciate your time. I also appreciate you going over time a little bit. Um, any last final words, anything you want to want to share or leave people with? Yeah, I appreciate the invite. I'm, I'm, I apologize for the uh, break in between, but I thought a little bit of poorer camera picture is better than me uh, getting <laughs> off completely. No, I love it. Um, and super interesting questions. Thanks so much for inviting me and reflect about this. I haven't done this in a while, so I really appreciate it. And I hope it was valuable. L let me know the feedback. Uh, if there's something good or something bad, super keen cool. to hear. All right, guys. Thank you guys for joining. Um, you can connect with Philip. You can connect with me if you have any other questions. And uh, we'll do this every week, Wednesday. So next Wednesday, we have Udi Lettergor, the chief evangelist at Gong joining us so that should be fun too topic will be kind of how to create a category so if you guys like this one maybe you want to join the next one too and yeah thanks philip